Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. I'd like to invite you to take your phones out. We have one final multiple choice quiz we're going to take in this camp meeting series to begin our time together. Now, those of you who have been here week by week know the drill. You have a QR code up on the screen. You can point your camera in that direction and then tap on the link that comes up. If for some reason that is not working, you can open your web browser and type in pollev.com backward slash LLUC. pollev.com backward slash LLUC. Now, we're going to leave it up for just a bit. We've discovered this past week that some of our friends on the broadcast want to participate as well, but it takes a little bit longer to get out to them. So we're going to give just a few more seconds for them to be able to join us, and we want you to join us. And I still see phones up, people trying to get onto the site. Now, this morning, first service, three out of five. This morning, second service, anthem, five out of five. Hmm. Now, third service, the pressure's on. Okay? All right, I hope you've been able to get to the page. So here we go. Question number one. How many of the gospel writers refer to Jesus as a Carpenter. How many gospel writers refer to Jesus as a carpenter? One, two, three, four, or none? One, two, three, four, or none? All right, two is definitely leading the pack by quite a bit, and it seems to have settled down. So we're going to stop it there and tell you that you are correct. Matthew and Mark make reference to Jesus as a carpenter. Number two, Jesus' preferred name for himself the term by which he most often referred to himself was son of man, son of God, prophet, servant, or Christ. Wow, that's not even close. Son of man is way ahead, and that would be correct. That is right, son of man. To all of you who did not watch for a service. <clears throat> Number three, only two gospels tell the story of Jesus' birth. They are. Mark and John, Matthew and John, Mark and Luke, Matthew and Luke, none of the above. Have mercy. Matthew and Luke went way out ahead. That's not even close. All the way up to almost 80%. And that is correct for three out of three. Number four, how many magi, that is wise men, visited Jesus a little while after his birth? How many? One, two, pardon me, one, three, five, seven, or we don't know. One, three, five, seven, or we don't know. 
All right, so three is pretty far out there, 58%, and that is incorrect. <laughs> e, we don't know. They brought three gifts. So the assumption is there are three, and tradition and legend said there were three, but we don't know from Scripture. So we're one out. Five, only one miracle performed by Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. It is the resurrection of Lazarus, stilling of the storm-tossed sea, healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, feeding of the 5,000, or healing of the invalid lowered through the roof. And again, we have a clear leader, feeding of the 5,000, which is correct. So four out of five, that's very good. Very well done to my dear, dearly beloved third service family. Uh, we're just a little bit off, but we did very well. Now, as we think about decision-making, choices that lie before us, they're never as simple as this just clicking and finding out immediately whether or not it was the best choice. I've wrestled with choice-making in my own life. In fact, I read what man, one man said, and I thought, boy, that describes me. He said, I have all the decision-making skills of a squirrel crossing the road. <laughs> you know, you've seen it, and it's like, <laughs> you never know where it's going to end up. Challenging decisions. Today we're going to talk about not only a decision, but a keystone decision. Keystone decisions are those critical decisions that which, when we make them, set a whole trajectory for our lives. You know what a keystone is, no doubt. We're going to put a picture up on the screen of an arch, a rock arch. That stone right at the top, that's the keystone. It's the keystone because if you pull that stone out, what happens? The whole arch collapses. Everything depends on that keystone. That keystone holds it together, keeps it up, doesn't allow it to collapse. Well, keystone decisions are like that. They're so important that if we pull out, we don't make them, or we make the wrong one, it could set us on a wrong trajectory for a very long time. It is said that there are three keystone decisions, which many, if not most, or even a Maybe all of us make. One of them is what God we will serve. The second one is what person we will marry if we marry. And the third one is what career we will enter. I want to point your eyes toward that first one, what God we will serve. I want to go so far as to suggest today that that is the keystone decision of our lives. If we mess that one up, we risk the entire arch of our lives collapsing. We're going to look at that keystone decision in the life of Matthew. We're going to Matthew's gospel. Let me just say that there are those who believe, and I count myself among them, that Matthew is the one who wrote the gospel, but there are others who see it differently. There's also over in Mark and Luke, similar instances mentioned with someone named Levi. Thus has grown up the belief that Levi Matthew was one and the same person. But it doesn't change the reality of what we look at today. Because in Matthew's gospel, the ninth chapter, we're going to see Matthew making a keystone decision. As I pondered it this week, lived with it, 
mulled over and mused this moment in Matthew's life. It got me to thinking there are other names that could be written into this text, other names of which this very same story could be told. And that left me wondering if maybe your name could be written in the text. Read it with me, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. It's so terse, so succinct, so brief that if you blink, you blink, you'll miss it. That there are many Bible students who read that and say, this cannot be the whole story. There must be more to it. Maybe Matthew had been in the crowd on different occasions and had listened to Jesus. Maybe he had learned from his parables. Maybe he had, he, had, he had viewed the portrait that Jesus was painting of God. Maybe he had seen his acts of mercy and love. Maybe he had even had an opportunity to engage with him, ask him questions. But, say these Bible students, there must be more than just this. This is just too compelling, too quick. They may be exactly right, but this is what the text says. Matthew, sitting at his booth, collecting taxes, Jesus walked by, said, follow me. Matthew got up, left it all behind, and followed him. Very succinct. This is a keystone decision. This is a, a B.C.A.D. decision, that, that decision that divides your life into B.C., before choice, A.D., after the decision. This is that kind of a moment. Last Saturday night at Drayson Center at our social, where we had a wonderful time, and I got to interact with many of you, I stood and talked for a while to Paul and, and Sarah Herman. Talked to Paul, his interest, he's in medicine, but his interest about theology. And he commented on this text, pointing me to two words that I went back this week and had to kind of tease out. Two words in the original which are illuminating. One of them is that word that in English is translated sitting. Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth, sitting. In the originals, that word means <laughs> sitting, <laughs> curiously enough. But if you stay with it, it has other nuances. The nuances of being idle are there, hanging out, chilly, copacetic. I've got the world by the tail. All is good. Sure, people hate me because I'm a tax collector, but then I can laugh all the way to the bank. City. Second word is the word that is translated got up which, curiously enough, means got up. <laughs> but it, too, has nuances and other uses, including the fact that it is used of people who are being resurrected or brought into being. Matthew is chilling in life, thinking this is all life has to offer. Jesus shows up and resurrects him. Because Matthew responds to his call. Keystone decision. 
Rembrandt, that great painting of the crucifixion that shows Jesus hanging on the cross and shows others in the crowd that surround him, the soldiers, the gambling, the mocking crowd, maybe a disciple or two hunkering back in the dim background. But there's one other figure down toward the corner. And if you look at it closely, it's a self-portrait of Rembrandt. Rembrandt has painted himself into the scene as one who just as surely was there. I see a painting, a painting that we could title, Follow Me. It's Jesus walking through Loma Linda with his invitation. And over here on this side of the painting, just under that arch, just under the keystone, sits a figure. You can't see it well. But it looks, well, it could be you. Because the truth is, we could take this passage, Jesus said, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him, and we could write other names accurately into the passage. We could write the name John, Matthew's colleague. You remember John. One of the two sons of thunder, if you want to get a sense of his ethos, Jesus gave him the nickname. The one who, when he experienced a Samaritan slight along with the other disciples and Jesus, turned to Jesus and said, do you want me to call fire down from heaven, destroy them? Jesus walked by John and said, follow me. And John got up and followed and followed and followed for decades. The longest lived of all the apostles, who by the time he was stooped over a cane with large roomy eyes and a long gray beard, he was saying things like, the one who says they love God and yet who hates their neighbor is a liar who said things like, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. We could write his name into the passage because it changed him. And it just left me wondering if we could write your name in the passage. We could write Zacchaeus' name in the passage. Zacchaeus. Name means pure, blameless. <laughs> well, that may have been a desire of a mom and a dad standing before a priest at the child dedication, but that certainly wasn't the reality of the life of Zacchaeus. He was a compatriot, a comrade with Matthew, a tax collector. 
And just to be clear, consider these words from the pen of New Testament scholar Stuart Weber, who writes, tax collectors in general were known for their greed and lack of conscience, so they were thought of as the lowest form of humanity. Pure, blameless, not on your life. But then one day, Jesus walked past the tree in whose branches Zacchaeus was lodged. And Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus, guess who's coming to dinner? And Zacchaeus clambered down the tree and followed him. So that by the end of the meal at Zacchaeus' home that evening, Zacchaeus had out his checkbook and was writing blank checks and handing them out to people and telling them, if I defrauded you, here it is. Take what I defrauded you and multiply it four times. Fill it in. Everything changed. Because Zacchaeus wrote his name in the text, Jesus walked by and said, follow me, Zacchaeus. And he got up and followed him. And it just left me wondering if we could write your name in the text. We could write the name Francis Collins in the text. Jesus walked through the hallways of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And as he walked past a doorway that said Francis Collins with the title underneath that said Director, Jesus said, follow me. Those two words spoken to that man threatened to undo his entire life. Not only director of the National Institutes of Health, but the leader of the Human Genome Project, best-selling author according to the New York Times, one who had taken pride in the fact that he was atheist, Coming through medical school, he said, I didn't have to worry about questions of God. My life was more simple in that regard. Follow me. The words came to him not necessarily just like that, but they came disguised in other ways, and yet behind them there was that unmistakable Galilean accent. Follow me. They came to him one day in the questions of a patient. Patient who looked at him and said, Dr. Collins, what do you believe in? What sustains you? I went home, he said. And a long journey began of wrestling, of grappling, of, of, of trying to come to some kind of conclusion about all of this. Follow me. Proud of his 
doubts his atheism, and yet that compelling invitation continued to pursue him. He was finding refuge in nature, he said, but by now, as he went into nature, it was as though everywhere he could see the fingerprints of God. And thus it was that one day, well, I'll let, you, let him tell it to you in his words. I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God, and now I was being called to account. On a beautiful fall day, as I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and the beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose and surrendered to Jesus Christ. We could write the name Francis Collins in the text because it changed everything when Jesus walked by and said, follow me. And he got up and questioningly, doubtingly, with uncertainties, began to follow. And it changed everything. And it just made me wonder this week if maybe we could write your name in the text. We could write the name Fyodor Dostoevsky in the text. Dostoevsky, that, that writer, that novelist of such supreme talent that some think he may be the best writer in all of history, certainly at the top of the heap in terms of Russian writers. Dostoevsky, who in his younger life got caught up in the purge of Tsar Nicholas I, the Tsar thinking he was involved in treasonous activity and so swept him up in a raid of all these parlor radicals and sentenced him to death. They marched them out of their cells early that morning, dressed them in the white gowns of death, and with manacle hands transported them to the place of execution. There stood the poles to which they would be bound and in front of them the line where the firing squad would fire. They were bound. Final preparations were completed. The guns were locked and raised, ready, aim. And at that instant, a horseman galloped into the square saying, stop, stop. He brought word from the Tsar. The Tsar who had intended all of this as some kind of grim, macabre charade to terrify the victims, which succeeded. He commuted their sentence and sentenced them instead to 10 years hard labor in Siberia. 
Dostoevsky would later say, I stared death in the face. Ever after that, I clung to life as the most precious of gifts. As he was boarding the train for Siberia, a pious, devout Russian woman shoved into his hands a small New Testament, the only book he was allowed. It became his constant companion. It became his life. Through the pages and the words of that book, there echoed down to him through the tunnels of time those two words, follow me. Jesus walked by that Siberian cell with that invitation and Theodore listened. He said, by the time I left my imprisonment, I was so profoundly, so deeply wedded to Christ. Well, I'll let, you, let him tell you in his own words. He says, if anyone had proved to me that Christ was outside the truth, then I would have preferred to remain with Christ than with the truth. He was that profoundly bonded to the one who had said, follow me. So Jesus walked by that cell and said, follow me. And Theodore, with devotion and gratitude, got up and followed. And that changed everything. It just left me wondering, could we possibly write your name in that text today. There's another name we can write in that text. Jesus walked by the home of a young, newly married pastor and said, follow me. I had heard those words before probably all of my life, had tried to heed and respond, but just keep a buffer, keep some safe space between us. In the words of Richard Buse, I wrote my name in the passage in pencil. And then came those years where in a more piercing penetrating, probing way. The words came, follow me. It was as though I said to Jesus, Jesus, I'd, I'd like to, but it's, it's hard to follow you with all this baggage. It's hard to carry. How far are we going? It's hard to carry. And it was as though Jesus responded, you know, just 10, 15 miles from where you live. There's a Christ-following therapist. Go talk. We did. He was good at unpacking. We unpacked, and it wasn't fast. It was painful, scary, made me angry, 
But we unpacked. And then one day, it was as though he said to me, wait, wait a minute. What? I thought we took this out last week. What are you, in the middle of the week, repacking? What are you doing? And even support and say, maybe you need to get into an accountability group, just others with whom you can share, that they can help you stay unpacked. Through all these different people and voices, those two words just kept coming. Follow me. Follow me. I'm deeply taken with what the eminent British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright writes. He says, when it comes to these kinds of experiences, these, these seminal moments, this life change, this keystone decision, there are at least two kinds. One is the alarm clock variety, the classical alarm clock story. You're asleep, you're in the darkness, the alarm sounds, you awaken, you get up, bam, turn the alarm off. Your life is changed. You're headed in a new direction. You are not going back. That's not my story. It is the story of Saul of Tarsus, bent on destruction and killing, on his Damascus Road journey, when suddenly the heavens part, the light descends, piercing to the very depths of his soul. The alarm clock sounds. Paul is never the same again, never looks back. John Wesley, who could point to the service, to the moment when his heart was strangely warm. The alarm clock story. It's not mine. There's a second kind, says Wright. It's that kind where you awaken and sleep and awaken and doze. And it takes a period of time. Days, weeks, months, decades. before you finally are fully awake. That's much more my story. It's much more my journey, even to this day, sometimes wondering how in these days I still sometimes doze. But I can tell you this. My name is now written in pen, in ink. Jesus walked by the home of a young, newly married pastor and said, follow me. He got up slowly with fear and anger. Let's keep a bit of distance here, but began to follow. And it just made me wonder if we could write your name in the text today. This whole camp meeting series, we've been talking about decisions, about standing at the fork in the road, 
having to decide. And our multiple choice question has been, what would help you make a wisdom reflecting, make a decision reflecting divine wisdom? What would help you the most? Would it be option A, character, moral and ethical fiber? Would it be option B, counsel, who has your ear? Would it be option C, composition, what makes you tick? Would it be option D, compassion, I already made the wrong choice? Or will it be option E, all of the above? Because you look at that and you say, I need every one of those. Everyone is critical. Well, if you're saying that, then, then, then I'm going to change the option. And if st instead of using four words, all of the above, option E becomes Christ. Because when you get Christ, you get it all. And so Jesus walked by Loma Linda. And he looked at you. And he said, follow me. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.